We continue our series through the book of 1 Samuel today by picking up the narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 36. If you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. I'm reading from the 2020 update of the New American Standard Bible. The scriptures say this, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why are you showing contempt for my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded for my dwelling? And why are you honoring your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father was to walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be insignificant. Behold, the days are coming when I will eliminate your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will look at the distress of my dwelling, in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And there will never be an old man in your house. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. And this will be the sign to you which will come in regard to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and my soul. And I will, bind, I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. And everyone who is left in your house will come to bow down to him for a silver coin or a loaf of bread, and say, Please assign me to one of the priest's offices, so that I may eat a piece of bread. In this passage, we're introduced to a new character, so to speak. We've not been given his name. He's simply called the man of God. This is a fairly common First Testament way of referring to a person that God has sent with a message. Such folks are more often called prophets, but man of God occurs frequently as well. It's actually quite difficult to determine the precise difference between the two designations. Both terms are used of Moses, for instance. Moses was called the man of God in Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 1, and he was referred to as a prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 10. Samuel 2 will be called both the man of God in 1 Samuel 9.6 and a prophet in 1 Samuel 3.20. So whether the terms are meant to convey some subtle difference is difficult to tell. To my reading, all men of God are prophets, but not all prophets are men of God. For instance, I can find no reference to false men of God in the Christian scriptures, but there are many who are called, on the other hand, false prophets. In the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, I suspect that the man of God designation is reserved for those whom the authors were certain were sent by God, whereas the designation of prophet could be used for any person who claimed to have been sent by God or who was presumed to have received a message from God. In any case, I might have overstated, but I think that's roughly it. In any case, what is clearer is that the title, The Man of God, indicates that the person who came to Eli was sent by God with a message to deliver. And his message was an unpleasant one. Of course, the unpleasantness of the message should not be surprising to us. After all, in our last discussion, we read in 1 Samuel 2.25 that God had determined to put Eli's sons to death. But what has not been clear to this point 
is God's estimation of Eli himself. To this point in the narrative, Eli has pronounced two blessings on Hannah, both of which God chose to fulfill. As far as we've been able to tell, Eli was taking good care of Samuel, who was growing both in God's esteem and in the esteem of the people. And in the verses we discussed last week, Eli confronted his sons about their sins. It's possible to have assumed, at least to this point in the story, that Eli's sons were the problem. But if we were inclined to read the story in that way, the message of the man of God has revealed our error. The man of God began his message to Eli with a history lesson. And this is quite common when God sends a person with a message of impending judgment. The scriptures routinely present God as being very deliberate about ensuring that his people understand precisely what they have done, why he has determined to judge them, what precisely that judgment will be, and for how long they can expect to endure it. God follows this pattern with King Saul, for example, later in 1 Samuel, and with King David in 2 Samuel as well. The history that God brought to mind through the man of God was the initial ordination of the family of Aaron as high priests. God's focus was on the great honor and blessing he had bestowed on the family of Aaron through their high priestly ministry. God's accusation was that in the days of Eli, God's blessings were seen as inadequate, and the priests were, in some cases, taking more than they were allotted, and in other cases they were taking things they were prohibited from taking. In response, God established four condemnations of the house of Eli. First, he said they were showing contempt for God's sacrifices and offerings. Second, they were breaking the promises they made to God in the covenant of Sinai. Third, Eli himself was honoring his children above God. And fourth, they were robbing God by enriching themselves with the parts of the offerings reserved for God himself. As Eli had already instructed his sons in the previous verses, if one person sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? This was another way of saying that God's judgment is final, and Eli knew this, so it's probably not surprising that he did not respond to the man of God's words in any way. After all, Eli knew that he and his sons were indeed guilty. So God declares judgment on the house of Eli, and God's judgment would not be without love, at least love understood in a biblical sense, without chesed is the Hebrew word. Remember that the Hebrew word chesed refers to God's steadfastness in fulfilling all he has promised and all he has said. Even though Eli and his sons had broken the covenant of Sinai, we can trust that God would not break his word. And that's how he began, when God said, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father was to walk before me forever. The way God has phrased this beginning is interesting. I did indeed say. The construction in Hebrew is somewhat telling. The phrase is strengthened, and this is a little bit of Hebrew, by a repeating of the verb amar, which means to speak. The first use is an infinitive absolute, and the second is a call perfect. Now, I realize that for most who are listening, much of what I just said is gobbledygook. I've included it for any who are listening who might know Hebrew, but here's the takeaway for all of us. This construction, according, for instance, to the Hebrew grammarian Wilhelm Jesenius, indicates concession. What this means is that God was conceding a point to Eli. Now, Eli hadn't said anything out loud, but the language suggests that God anticipated an objection in his heart that may reveal the source of Eli's and his son's disobedience, or at least a part of their rationale for what they were doing. 
it would seem that Eli and his sons felt that the promises God had made to the family of Aaron, in being irrevocable, prevented God from acting against them. To say it another way, Eli seems to have assumed that however badly the priesthood violated the covenant of Sinai, they would always be high priests. Now, we can't be sure that Eli was deliberately violating the covenant of Sinai himself. As we admitted in previous discussions, it's possible that his unlawful practices were due to ignorance that came from negligence rather than from rebelliousness. This assumption may be supported, in fact, by Eli's confronting his sons only with respect to their sexual behavior. The covenant of Sinai's requirements for sexuality had recently, in Eli's day, been reaffirmed through the terrible events surrounding the Benjamite town of Gibeah, which has been chronicled at the end of the book of Judges. Gibeah was about 15 miles from Eli's dwelling in Shiloh as the crow flies. Now, there's no need to get into that sordid tale now. You can read the end of Judges if you're interested. But suffice it to say that sexual sins were at the forefront of Israel's mind in Eli's day. So that was a sin of which Eli and his sons would have been well aware. Whatever the reason for the behavior of Eli's household, God conceded that his promise to Aaron's descendants was, the Hebrew phrase is, ad olam, literally, until, forever. And yet, God proceeded to say, in the words of the New American Standard Bible, far be it from me. This is a tame translation of the Hebrew in my view. The Hebrew verb here is halal, and it generally means to pollute or to defile. God was more or less saying that to fulfill his promise to Aaron's family would defile him. So in the words of Ralph Klein in his commentary on 1 Samuel in the Word Biblical Commentary series, though Yahweh has to admit that he once made the promise that Eli would function as priest before him, he now reverses that promise in a new oracle and underscores it with an oath. And in the immediate future, God's reversal will result in the death of Eli and his sons and in the diminishment of the high priesthood in Israel. Then, about a century later, Eli's own family would cease to serve as high priests altogether. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 3, Eli was a descendant of Aaron's son, Ithamar. In the days of King Solomon, a descendant of Aaron's other son, Eleazar, named Zadok, would be installed as the sole high priest, removing Eli's descendants ever afterward from serving in the role. So maybe that's that. However, as commentators D.F. Keel and F. Delish have observed, that was not the end of God's judgment. In his judgment of Eli, God had not brought Eli back simply to the origin of his family line in Aaron's son Ithamar. Ithamar is not even mentioned by God. God had brought Eli back to Aaron himself. I agree with Kiel and Delich that the implication of this is that God was prophesying the eventual removal of Aaron's descendants as high priests altogether. And that promise of God was ultimately fulfilled in the high priesthood of Jesus. As the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews has explained, this is Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 through 20, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear an oath by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained, he Abraham obtained the promise. 
For people swear an oath by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath serving as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to demonstrate to the heirs of the promise the fact that his purpose is unchangeable, confirmed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to hold firmly to the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, without wandering too far into the complicated argument of the book of Hebrews, it is sufficient to recognize that the writer of Hebrews has suggested that there was a high priesthood that predated the high priesthood of Aaron, that of the Canaanite king Melchizedek, whom Abraham recognized as a high priest of Yahweh centuries before Aaron was born. The writer of Hebrews has suggested that Jesus, who in the flesh was a descendant of the tribe of Judah, not of Levi as Aaron had been, was entrusted with the high priesthood of the people of God in the order of Melchizedek. In the commissioning of Jesus as high priest once and for all, the pronouncement of God's judgment on the house of Aaron in 1 Samuel 2 has finally been fulfilled. What does this passage tell us about God? This is a difficult question because it certainly could seem as though God went back on his word. After all, if the covenant of Sinai was the only covenant God would ever make with humans, and if Aaron's descendants were the only ones designated to be high priests of that covenant, then Eli would have been correct in assuming that, however evil his behavior, God could never choose another family to be priests. What Eli did not know, nor did anyone else in Israel until at least the days of Jeremiah, was that God had always intended to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. That the covenant of Sinai would be a first covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34, God declared the following, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now Israel might have heard this prophecy of Jeremiah as declaring that God would renew the covenant of Sinai, as opposed to authoring a completely new covenant. In fact, it seems as though most of the Jewish people in Jesus' day did read Jeremiah's prophecy in this way. But the writer of Hebrews, in referencing this very prophecy of Jeremiah, has suggested otherwise. He wrote the following in Hebrews 8 verses 6 through 13. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, to the extent that he is also the mediator of a better covenant, he being Jesus, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been free of fault, no circumstances would have been sought for a second. 
For in finding fault with the people, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will bring about a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care about them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach each one his fellow citizen and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful toward their wrongdoings, and their sins I will no longer remember. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is about to disappear. The covenant prophesied by Jeremiah is most undoubtedly completely new. And it's a covenant made not only with ethnic Israel, but with all nations on earth, as those who share the faith of Abraham from all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, are adopted into the household of God, of which Jesus is the head. And yet a difficulty remains. If the covenant of Sinai is forever, then how would any Israelite be set free from obligation to it and liberated to enter into the new covenant of which Jeremiah prophesied and Hebrews has declared? Well, one would have to die and be raised to new life. As the Apostle Paul has tried to explain in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, and by law he means the covenant of Sinai, that the law, the covenant of Sinai, has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is alive she gives herself to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress if she gives herself to another man. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in regard to the law, the covenant of Sinai, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were brought to light by the law were at work in the parts of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, from the covenant of Sinai, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The good news, the gospel of Jesus to Jewish people is, in part, for Paul. The realization that by faith in Christ, who one was in the flesh, can be put to death. And by being raised in Christ to new life, spiritually in a way here, but really in the resurrection, we are also free to enter into the new covenant that God has made with all nations in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what is most interesting in the context of our discussion today is that a portion of what was fulfilled in Jesus was prophesied by God through the man of God he sent to Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 to 36. So we return to the question, what does 1 Samuel 2, 27-36 tell us about God? That long discussion was to demonstrate that it does not tell us that God goes back on his word. It was not God who broke the covenant of Sinai. It was the people of Israel. In our context specifically, the high priestly family of Aaron was breaking the covenant routinely in the days of Eli. Once the covenant was broken, God was honor-bound to fulfill a darker part of the covenant, which has been detailed for us in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
verses 14 through 68. I won't read the whole passage, though I do invite you to do so. But essentially, what it says is that in the case that Israel failed to keep chesed with God, loyalty to the covenant, faithfulness to their promises, God promised to send curses upon them. He was remaining faithful to this promise in our context in 1 Samuel 2, 27-36 in his judgment of Eli and his sons. And God was remaining faithful to this promise centuries later, when he gave first the northern kingdom of Israel to destruction at the hands of Assyria, and then later the southern kingdom of Judah to destruction at the hands of Babylon. And yet, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1-14, through 14, just a few verses after, after the curses were described. God also promised that if judgment were necessary, that after that judgment, he would gather his faithful ones from exile, he would write the teachings of God on their hearts, and he would restore all that had been taken. It was to this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1-14, through 14, that Je- Jeremiah was later hearkening back when he spoke of a new covenant God would make with the people of Israel. And for the apostles of Jesus, this promise of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 14, found its final fulfillment in the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So this passage does not reveal to us that God does not keep his promises. Quite to the contrary, it reveals to us that God is faithful to all of his promises. Eli and his sons appeared to have believed that one of God's promises, namely that Aaron's sons would be priests throughout all the generations of the covenant of Sinai, would necessarily negate another of his promises, namely that God would judge the wicked and would not allow rebellious sinners to stand in his presence. What we learn about God is that he can keep all of his promises simultaneously, but often in ways we would not predict. In other words, If we think we can game the system and force God's hand by claiming that one of his promises supersedes another, we might learn from Eli the same lesson that the Apostle Paul attempted to teach the Christians of Galatia in Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Paul said this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. Even in the new covenant of Jesus, this warning from the life of Eli speaks powerfully. In Romans chapters 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul was wrestling with this very subject, the question of what happens when God's own people reject him as Lord. Paul's argument is complicated and well worth exploring in its own right, but its summary metaphor will suffice to illustrate Paul's understanding of what was happening with Eli, what has happened with unbelieving ethnic Israel, what has happened with believing Gentiles, and what might still happen with those who, as Eli and his sons, betray the faith they once professed. Paul explains all of this as follows in Romans chapter 11, verses 13 to 14 and 17 to 24. Paul writes, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Therefore, insofar as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I may move my own people to jealousy and save some of them. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, 
do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. See then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, for otherwise you too will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? God is always faithful to his promises. The story of Eli illustrates well the way in which God first described himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. God said this about himself, The Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished inflicting the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is who God has said he is. The Apostle John would millennia later summarize this statement of God with the phrase, God is love. But it's clear enough that God is not love as many of us use and hear the word. God is chesed. That is, God is undyingly faithful to what he has promised and what he has said. Eli knew that God had declared his family to be priests forever, so he reasoned that nothing he did could ever negate that promise. To say it another way, Eli reasoned that God could not punish the wickedness of Aaron because of his promise to maintain the priesthood of Aaron forever. Eli was wrong. God could do both, and he did fulfill both promises. Many today who have come to God by faith in Christ and the new covenant of Jesus think as Eli once did. That because God promised through Paul that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, that somehow that implies that God will absolutely leave the guilty unpunished. But the same Paul that promised that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord also warned later in the same book in the verses we just read from Romans 11 that those who were then standing by faith could be cut off if they turned to unbelief. Let us learn from Eli that there is no way to game the system by keeping our wickedness and receiving God's blessing at the same time. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thanks be to God. But the same Paul who wrote those words also warned the Christians of Corinth by asking, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Let us learn from the folly of Eli that God will always be who he told Moses he was. Though none of us could ever earn the salvation given to us freely in Jesus, the scriptures teach that we can most certainly forfeit it. May it never be so. Repent. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. For those who walk in this way, there is no longer fear of judgment. But for all those looking for loopholes, 
we must be warned that God will always be who he has always been. Amen.